0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sounds from the Studio, brought to you by Contemporary Craft. Contemporary Craft fosters the use of traditional craft materials such as ceramic, fiber, glass, metal, and wood to make art. Our community honors the history and heritage of craft while showcasing modern exploratory work. And since our organization
1: is located in Pittsburgh, PA, we decided to bring some of the stories of our exhibiting and studio artists to a broader audience by way of this podcast. I'm Rachel, the Executive
0: Director at Contemporary Craft. And I'm Camila, a podcaster and art enthusiast. We are your hosts for this journey. And there are many ways to keep up with us. You can go to the Facebook page and like it, Contemporary Craft, on Twitter at SCCPGH, Instagram at SCCPGH, or just go to ContemporaryCraft.org. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We just ask that you please follow, rate, and review, and also share, share, share alike.
1: By the time this podcast releases, we will have officially opened our exhibition titled Self with artists Erica Diamond and Matt Lambert, which explores ideas related to expectations of gender, identity, and sexuality. As a record number of bills sweep our country in advance attempts to attack LGBTQ rights, it becomes increasingly important for there to be spaces that are welcoming and encourage positive discourse around a myriad of topics that affect our community. Contemporary Craft aims to be one of those spaces with this exhibition serving as a beacon for our LGBTQ plus family that we are here and we're ready to amplify the discussions around these topics and serve as advocates. There are a number of programs to accompany the exhibition with a calendar of those events on our website.
0: I hope that you'll join
1: us if you're local.
0: All right, Matt Lambert, welcome to Sounds of the Studio. How are you doing today?
2: I'm great, how are you?
0: Fine, thanks. First of all, I—I I just this—the first question I have here is there a—is um, there a significance in the fact that where I'm seeing your name, it's—it's it's not capitalized, and I feel like that's a—that's on purpose. When there's a—is there a reason behind that, or is it just set? Yeah,
2: there's definitely a reason behind it. Um, it primarily comes from how Bell Hooks speaks about the non-capitalization of her pen name. Um, there's also other writers like Renee Hoogland and a few others that do not. Um, I fall in line with bell hooks when she says that the importance should be on the work and not on the name. And also, how I approach craft, I really have an issue around authorship. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, the question I always have to people is why do you capitalize your name?
0: Okay, all right, I I, I fully accept that you know. <laughs> 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 I, me personally, I just like the look of a big cake. So. <laughs>
1: so Matt, I'm not even sure where to start today. Uh, you know, I've been incredibly honored to have the chance to work with you over what I think has been almost a year now. And I have been just like a kid running at the ice cream truck. It's been a total dream come true to, to compose this exhibition with you. Um, so I guess maybe a good place to start is why I reached out to you. And there's the obvious that, like, your work is incredibly provocative and sophisticated in all the best ways. Uh, And it it tackles gender and sexuality and heavily rooted in craft but also it does that in many unexpected and abstract ways. And your bio, of course, says that you're non-binary, multidisciplinary artist focused on equity inclusion. So all of those things just like completely enthrall and resonate with me. Um, And we've talked a little bit about this uh, one-on-one, but maybe for the sake of our listeners, if we can start with what drives your work in so far as the exploration of
2: gender? Um, Ooh, to point that out. I think a lot of my work, I've had to come to admit, is really based around personal narrative. I also find it really difficult to not have self, especially coming through craft. Um, So it's also a way for me to grapple with gender constructions. I work a lot with historical archives, um, especially moving to Sweden, where there is a royal family and really looking at... Um, specific archives that cover kind of everything masculine um, in the Royal Armory, which is primarily where I work um, with archives and really trying to grapple with the position of my identity versus that and also really seeing how identities have been constructed through war and through violence and um, and that summons, you know, conversations around reparations and decolonization and all these kinds of complex things. And I just think that craft is the ideal place to really start to grapple with those things. So yeah, it's it's a leaky ship, so that's why there's a lot, but yeah, gender is is just there because of my own body, my own autonomy.
1: Okay, and you, you said craft is a, a great place to, to explore that. Can you deconstruct, why, why is it craft?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm doing my PhD in philosophy and artistic practice um, at Konsfak, uh in Stockholm, Sweden, and I'm really approaching craft as something that we mostly learn through material or repetitive action uh, in process, but you could probably learn in other ways if you wanted. Many people do, um, but it's really a way to see things in the world, it's a way to see land, it's a way to see labor, exploitation of labor, economy, waste. Um, It's really just a way to look at the world and understand that we are jumping into the cycle of things, we participate in that cycle, and then we kind of step away and all of these processes continue whether we're in them or not. And so. I believe that as craftspeople I have a big problem with the term mastery. Julieta Singh wrote a book on thinking mastery. Um, I don't think that I have control over anything. I think that I'm participating in systems, which goes back to not capitalizing my name as well. And so craft is indigenous. It is the minoritized, it is the marginal. It is something that we have to do for survival. Um, it existed, it wasn't a word in many cultures until industrialization happened. It's um, I remember when I did the MA in Critical Craft at Warren Wilson, we went to, the uh, uh, skip that, uh, the indigenous village with Cherokee, uh, and we were asking about the term craft, and one of the women was like, we don't have a word for that, it's just what we do. Mm-hmm. And so craft is responsible for building the cornerstones of our society, it holds that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, If you look at a lot of westernized mythology, gods are either women or you have like Hephaestus, who is the god of the forge. But he's ugly and disfigured and he's shoved up back in the womb or he's pushed off the mountain. Um, But without him, Zeus has no thunderbolt. And so craft has a lot of responsibility in the places and positions we are in now. But it also has the knowledge to disrupt that, find alternatives and also dismantle A lot of what we have in this world. And so I think because of all those beautiful mixtures of marginalized, discriminated uh, people, places, and things, um, it's always kind of kept at the bottom rung. And we have this art versus craft debate. But I don't believe that. I believe you can look at art with craft. Craft is a companion to basically look at anything. Um, And so I'm not materially specific. I'm not really process specific. I'm more interested in what the vernacular of what my hands know and do and what happens when I encounter things and what do, what starts to happen in those spaces.
1: So that's interesting because my I think one of my follow-up questions was going to be about, um, you know, the process of making and the act of collecting, right? So like I, I've had so many more conversations than I could ever you know track about what it means to make and what it means to collect. Um, and at, I guess at what point in your career did you actually start collecting objects that would end up in your compositions rather than being the, the type of artist that feels the necessity to make everything that is clustered within your work?
2: Yeah, well, I think the the first question I would have back is like, can you make everything?
1: No, of course, right? <laughs> yeah. So
2: I think like that's the like this kind of argument around like using the found object, but it's like even if you card wool to make everything before you weave it, it's like the sheep participated in making that, the grass participated in making that. So that goes back to this idea of jumping in on material cycles, and craft is just understanding that, and so when I use, quote unquote, a found object, uh, it's just jumping in at a different part of a cycle. And that's also breaking this kind of Western idea of like, you take like a flower, right? We prioritize when something blooms, but like for a plant that's its later stage before it dies, but like the ground needs the plant to die to have nutrients and maybe an animal needs the seeds or, so where we find value in these things or how we think about when we jump in these processes, I'm now starting realizing that like that, that's confrontational in my work because I would argue that like everything in a way is a found material. Um, that really hit me when I did my first masters at Cranbrook. I, I liked the loadedness that came, the history that was already built in, um, and the complex word of querying something. Uh, or what queerness is as <laughs> maybe like a whole other two hour podcast of how to unpack <laughs> that term. But uh, yeah, I, I like manipulating what already exists because it, it, it does some sort of distortion or it makes people question what are the objects around us or it makes us more aware. Um, Bill Brown talks about thing theory and it's like when an object breaks is only when we're aware of its function. So once it becomes a thing again, like our utility has left it. So uh, we're more, we're aware of it now. And so what do you do with that? And yeah, it's just become part of the practice. And sometimes I find things and I just hoard them for years now. Uh, I basically have a warehouse in Detroit. (laughs) Got it when uh, uh, space was much cheaper. And it's just kind of full. And it's really it's just another way I realized kind of subconsciously that it's about like grappling with the decorative arts and those histories we have in craft specifically in westernized white cishet dominated colonial narratives and thinking about like where did these things actually come from who actually made them um can we call them uh colonial objects is there a thing such as a colonial object I think colonization is an action that bodies choose to do I don't how can we put the burden on objects? Um, and so that manipulation of objects is also kind of claiming that by saying, like, it is not the object's fault that it participated in these systems. We have just chosen to use or form materials into these forms, but we also have the knowledge to break those forms as well.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that all of that, yes, and... Um, it, I think something has really struck me, uh, you know, personally, even more over the last, like, week, you know, getting to know you, the way you're working, your process, the objects, and it's really causing me to, like, be curious about the the ideology behind making and the concept of what is precious, and so we've joked a little bit about, like, the way you handle things versus the way our team is like very gingerly like approaching them and and concerned about how we handle them and I guess you know as you've kind of said these objects the ones that you've collected have in many instances survived centuries of handling Uh, and then there's this notion that once something becomes art it becomes precious and so I'm just curious is that part of The process for you like the intention to deconstruct what what does it mean for something to be precious or just in general what is preciousness to you
2: (laughs) yeah uh well I think framing fragility to preciousness uh sits again in that western narrative of a fear of death Mm -hmm. and uh you know when you look I guess uh as a a bad practicing Buddhist, not practicing anymore, <laughs> um, but still using some of those belief systems. Like there's this idea of I can still love you, but I don't need you in my life, mm-hmm. or accepting the fact that like death is also a beautiful thing. And so, I so to me, preciousness goes back to that idea of placing the value of like when the flower blooms. That's where its value is, rather than being aware that like. Yes, I'm not throwing around my glass objects, but a lot of things like they're meant to be worn. So like I also want, or performers use them. So there is some makeup stains on certain things or the leather pieces. I like people, um, not in this exhibition, but in other places <laughs> to touch them because <laughs> I know you, it will drive you a little. Yeah, also um, please nobody
1: touch the collars.
2: Cause. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they're meant to be worn. So if like, it's also a way of notice, like noticing function. Like I'm teaching now a lot more um, regularly at CONSVAC and it's like really challenging, especially people that are making utility and jewelry, especially it's like, how do you know that it works if you're not wearing it? How do you understand how something functions? If it's not, you know, you're not playing with that elasticity of use. Like, can, can you heat up a mug in the microwave? Are you sure? Have you done it? Like, have you drank out of your own coffee cup for a year every day to see like how a glaze holds up? Will it pick up stains? Um, these types of things um, for me, because if, if the idea is that we, there's this like nostalgic need of craft that we only need a few things in our lives. And if we're going down that path, then like, shouldn't we be aware that our objects are actually going to last that long like there's Mm -hmm. very wearable 3d printed steel rings in the exhibition and it's like i wore one for two years and i gave a few to other people to see like will they corrode will they rust what happens if you put soap on your hands will it mark your finger um so that i'm aware of that or how to resolve it or problem solve it um and then the the farther conceptual objects too is everything that I use that's quote unquote found is already kind of not in a state of newness. I mean, it's new to me. Like these these ideas and these terms we're using are like are where the problem sits for me. Like, what is new? What does it mean? Like, what is the value of something? For me, uh, I position the the physical object and the writing that I do because my my practice is heavily uh, half of it is writing at this point. Um, I view those as materials, and I view the conversations like, that we've been having while installing, or that when people see the show, or those interactions and those thoughts, like for me, that is the work. The object is not the work. How we use them, how we think of them, what the, the loadedness of some of these uh, found, I'm just using this word for the sake of it, um, what those bring to you, and everybody has their own perceptions and histories that drag into that. And so I'm more interested in like that space as thinking about the work.
0: Mm -hmm. So do do you prefer that your items be, have some wear and tear or are broken in or, you know, tested out before exhibition?
2: I mean, I test them all. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I have worn, I mean, not like every single object, but if at least it's like a, a kind of object, I've worn them. Um, the leather pieces, I run through the washing machine a few times to make sure that cause there's a single stitch and I want to make sure it's going to hold. Um, it's, it's an easy repair if, like, for some reason it ever does give out. But I'm if they're meant to be worn daily or regularly or more than, than keeping it on a shelf, um, yeah. And then I think the challenge with a lot of the work like the leather is if you don't wear it, it will dry rot. Like, it needs your skin and your oils, otherwise you need to oil it yourself. And so some of my work really questions that too, of like what what is the relationship of your body to materials?
1: Yeah, you know, and that's an interesting point for me as well about your work. Um, one of the things maybe I find most compelling is that there's like this voyeuristic aspect of the work you know because there's so much we haven't really talked about it but there's a lot of photographs that are in our gallery right now um, that accompany the objects and then the objects are in many cases seen on the body maybe not necessarily the actual same objects that are in those images Um, so I'm just curious can you talk a little bit about like that content like that why the imagery and why the relationship between what's in the gallery and what's in the photographs.
2: Mm-hmm. That practice really started when I became aware of my kind of fixation, going back to the archive of the the European Vundekama or the World Room, the Cabinet of Curiosity, um, and really thinking about how the work I tend to think about after I don't intentionally i am like, this makes sense, It's I trust my hands. It's part of craft is I'm consuming knowledge, but I'm usually letting the work lead the way and then I reflect on it after. And really seeing that the objects start to become stand-ins for certain things in the rooms, like the wood chains are made from salvaged teak furniture usually, or other forms of salvaged architectural wood. Um, you know, the mirrored pieces become tile and mirror. Uh, the leather, the, the the reclaimed, salvaged upholstery materials, and so the images just made sense as like the forms of historical portraiture that exist so a lot of the, the shapes and forms of the, the bodies in them are referencing that, like I usually show up with a couple of references um, I use when I was using models, that's another conflict um, I just brought some references, I had my super strict ideas of what I wanted to happen that never works out. Uh, But it just turns kind of into like a little queer party. We have some (laughs) snacks, we have a couple drinks put out and people just know like they get to pick and choose and I just like am hands off and it just becomes kind of an an act of play which I also think is really interesting. Largely, actually everybody in the images has some form of a queer identity um, as well as a lot of intersectionalities with um, black Trans, uh, refugee, immigrant, um, so everybody kind of has their own perspectives as well. So I'm, I really release that. I work a lot collaboratively, including with photographers, and it's just a loose framework. Um, so that's really where it comes in, and and thinking about how those bodies could exist in those spaces and do and did that we've really ignored. So it's also really questioning the. I am a student of historiography, not history, the multiple narratives that exist within history that are colonially dominated, colonially dominated. Uh, and what does that mean? And it's, it's, it gets into a sticky question of what is truth, which I know in this day and age, and as you said in the intro, like what, what is truth or what is fact? Uh, and in the creative fields, I think we can, we can question that in many ways
0: yeah absolutely how long have you been living in sweden
2: um i've been going back and forth since 2015 um and then i moved full-time uh (laughs) mid-pandemic uh (laughs) on election day uh 2020
0: wow and where are you from originally
2: um, so I grew up six months split, so in the winters I was in Detroit, mm-hmm. and then in the summers I lived in a protected provincial forest in Ontario, Canada called Rondo Provincial Park.
0: Oh wow, okay. And how has living in, how's your move to Sweden, or your, your most of your time in Sweden influenced your work, if at all? I mean, you may have already been this this deep <laughs> retrospective.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think living in, in very, very, very rural and uh, very urban, especially in an 80 percent black city with Dearborn just outside, which is where my parents live now, which is or was I don't know now the highest population of Middle Easterners outside of the Ugh. Middle East. Um, and then being in the countryside with more farmhand workers and really seeing the commonalities of the performance of gender uh, has really stuck with me and had me thinking about marginalization, oppression, reparation, what do these things mean? And moving to Sweden has been really confrontational because it is a very white-dominated discourse it's historically denied any participation in coloniz- colonization at all. Um, and I've been working with Murat Anasada, who is a Sami artist and writer. Um, she's in no- Northern Norway, and her brother is the one that uh, sued Norway for an infringement of dig- indigenous rights as a reindeer herder. Oh. And so it's just really made me realize, or when I speak to my students, that like, to have the intellectual component, but also to like, remind me that I need to figure out ways to speak to my students who are encountering these ideas for the very first time. These aren't, these aren't things that they often are discussing, or some of them are, but the major discourse is, is not around um, equanimity. I, you know, uh, democracy for me is a reinscription of, of colonization. And when you're in a, a country that is about equality, not equity, and uh, democracy, there's, there's a lot more to unpick again. So it's just really forced me um, to remind and remind me that uh, I need to find ways to, to accessibly communicate with people.
0: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um- when was it that you realized or accepted that you were an artist?
2: I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I've i always kind of worked, I think, and I never conformed really to singular materiality or process, which is funny as I say, like that's how craft is thought of. I learned that way, but quickly departed. And I just remember having a professor who like strangely told me you're not an artist until somebody says you are Mm. and I don't yeah I don't really uh I would put an expletive in here right now I don't agree with that uh, at all about like what is art because that's also this it it reintroduces this craft versus art thing and it's like Uh, But, you know, then art sometimes is like, everything is art. And so then it's like, can everybody be an artist then? And uh, I'm just a transmitter. Like, I think that craft, that's what we are. Like, we are transmitters. We are responsible for these specific forms of knowledge and ways of thinking and looking. And our job is to pass those on. And, I mean, even when you look traditionally, even in uh, Westernized systems, the idea is that you surpass Uh, the person who has taught you and that is your citation in history and your name is carried that way and so I'm not interested in having my capitalized name in in big lights somewhere I am the value for me and and this logic I think comes from marginalized communities and especially in queer communities it is about building kinships and family structures and I view craft should be the same way and is often um, that our, our job is to help each other, and when we start framing it in art discourse, like economy comes in, and like all these really terrible uh, capitalistic terms are summoned. So if you want to call me an artist, that's that's fine. Um, you can call me lots of things. That's fine. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I I don't know if I'm a creative. I don't know if I'm a writer. I I also curate. I do so many other things that. Um, being in, in Europe as well, the question of what do you do is kind of not what's asked at a party. And I find that really refreshing because you're not like, why are we Love defining that. ourselves by like where our economy comes from? Because we are all under capitalism and most people are doing things they don't want to do for their money. So what does that tell you about somebody? Like, it's, I'd rather be like, what do you enjoy or like. What type of movie do you watch? What are you reading right now? (laughs) Yes. Or like listening to or uh, anything. What's a good restaurant in the area is a a more interesting and I think tells you more about a person. Do you like spicy food? Tells you a lot versus like. uh, What do you do? It just creates a, a classist hierarchy that is completely unnecessary and makes our lives even more difficult.
1: Yeah, you know, I I normally ask this kind of standard question of, like, do you have a mentor in the field? But even, like, on our drive here, I'm, like, again, thank you. I'm challenging so many of my own preconceived kind of notions or things I've learned and carried uh, about lineage and things along those lines. So I think I might change it a little bit. And instead, I'm, I have a curiosity of, like, you know, is there a... Like a collaborator or a colleague or some someone or something that resonates kind of intellectually like with you or with the work that you do or informs, you know, some type of reciprocal exchange. Maybe we'll put it that way, <laughs> if that makes
2: sense. <laughs> Kinships. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I mean... mean- if we're talking purely through like the the kind of craftscape, um, I would always say if you if you looked at Lauren Kalman, Iris Eichenberg, uh, and Christoph Zellviger, who I was assistant for in, in Zurich, um, and I studied under the the other two, um, my work makes sense kind of visually, like the usage of image and questioning like what is jewellery. Um Lauren and I have become good friends. We were co-curatorial fellows. Um, She taught me a lot, in many ways, about thinking about craft, thinking about navigating systems when you're not... uh, you're more concept-specific rather than material or physical uh, process-specific. It's more conceptual in that way. So I would say she has a huge impact and continues to this day as, as we have our dinner conversations and and social media messaging and her uh her studio is like one block away from mine in detroit um i would say that has a, has a really strong impact and i think marat anasara really has flipped my world upside down a lot thinking about what does it mean to sell something where is value um, and also, just coming from an indigenous perspective, and when we are collaboratively showing, uh, kind of being fearless to demand an autonomy and to, to call things out when it's like, uh, no, I'm not going to hand deliver these things because you were late on the shipping, or you know, like really asserting, I think, a lot of craft spaces, um, which I know we've talked a lot about, and how you've been. Uh, thinking and developing, which has been amazing to, to hear, um, they're, they're abusive. They're just straight out abusive and because these pay to show things and these paying to ship the work or pay to ship it to a collector to hear that they don't want it and so they send it back and so you're you're out the $50, 100 for the insured object so you just paid to potentially have somebody buy something. and we, We've normalized the system and uh, there's this fear that after you, there's someone behind you who will just do it. Mm. Um, so where's the craft union <laughs> is, is the question, or yeah, like how do we have these collective conversations about um, care and tending mm. and and abuse? Conflict is not abuse. I mean, that's Sarah Schulman's work as a writer. There's a book, Conflict is Not Abuse. Um, it should be productive, and I think we've really shied away from hard conversations. And I think you doing this exhibition opens up some of those hard conversations. But like, we should be doing this every day. We should we should find a conflict. We should sit down and say, how are we doing? Where is there a rupture? And productively, not solve it. We will not solve these things. But how do we get to points where we feel seen and cared for and heard? Um, and, and putting the ego aside, again, stepping away from this kind of egocentric, uh, generalized art model. I mean, I'm using this term art, but I'm really specifically talking about the blue chippy art fair, the, the thing that's often criticized. There are art practices that do not do this, but when, I, when I'm using that word, that's what I mean.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something I think I appreciate the team here a lot as well, that everyone is really committed to um, you know I, I I feel like there's so many like words and all the vocabulary around it right like it's not about being agitational or confrontational or any of those things but everyone here is very committed to like let's go beyond the aesthetic of things and let's talk about how this opens um, a conversation or how this object serves as a catalyst for a discussion about, about a topic or about something else so i mean yes again i thank you and erica both so much because i'm i'm very excited about this i think we're gonna end up having some difficult discussions through the run of this and i like i'm looking forward to it i think we can't avoid the things that make us uncomfortable so
2: yeah yeah i mean i greatly appreciate it and i think it's been really interesting mm-hmm. because this has been the chance for me to physically meet Erica. We've, we've had lots of discussions digitally and other mm-hmm. things, but it's we've, we've both kind of realized how much we overlap, but how differently we approach it. And I think it's really um, that's why I love the moment of the exhibition is because you get to see like that's the work, right? Is mm-hmm. It's not my work and Erica's work. It's like, what does it do together? What does it say together, where does it disagree, and it has that conversation with itself as well. And so what, what does that mean? And, um, and again, there's not an answer, I think that's the important thing in any of this. It's also like queerness doesn't have a single definition. Right. Um, there are many definitions, just like transness does not have a singular definition, non-binary does not have a singular definition and there's this constant drive to say this is what it is. Like Mm -hmm. as we're having this conversation of what is wokeness? Like these are all just inklings of this desire to put it in a dictionary, but it's like when we really think about it, what is also a dictionary doing? Like in some way it is giving us a shared language, but in another way it is controlling the way that we think about things. Mm -hmm. And that's all precarity that has no answer and so, like in academia, like write like AAVE, African American Vernacular English, or having students where English is like their third language, and encouraging them to put the way that they think in their uh, first language, like how they order words. I want them to keep that in their writing because it's their voice. It's the way they speak, and so really challenging. What is something I think is the value? I think that that type of friction is is the value. But also, I think that's that's challenging a viewer because there isn't something digestible. They, it's not, here's the candy, eat it, swallow it, taste good, taste bad, and leave. It's more like, here is a buffet of things. Which things are you going to put together? and does it taste good? And like, you could come in every day and redo that, and you would never have an answer. Mm-hmm. And maybe one day you're happy and this tastes good. but like, we don't want to eat ice cream every day. Most of us don't. But like, you know, like, what mood are you in? You're in a certain mood when you want to consume things. And so every time we encounter something, which breaks this idea of newness as well, it is new just because we are, we're not a new person, but we're not different. We're just, we have a different facet out every Mm -hmm. moment. And so that, that for me also is the value of this constant rearrangement of work or like being with Erica and what happens if it goes with another person's work or constantly shifting the objects that I use. Um, that's why I don't date things is because it's like your encounter is the date that it exists. And I learned things from objects I made 10 years ago, putting them with something I will make tomorrow. And that will be something else that will say something completely different for me. And... It's just really trying to think out of this capitalistic, consuming model that I want crafts people to get away from. We're falling into this fast fashion mentality. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, look at like non-fast fashion methods, right? We have like cruise and spring and uh, almost fall and <laughs> just after fall collections and these kinds of, it's getting ridiculous and so we're, we are generally stepping away from this, like what we have is enough to learn from. Mm-hmm. And deeper thinking about what we have in front of us is still a valid way of practicing. We don't need to make something else as far as an object necessarily to get more knowledge, to get more inquiry, to get more questions. Um, and so that for me, that's newness. That That wow. is constantly this idea of, of what, um, learning and thinking uh, can be.
1: Yeah, I mean I mean all of that is also interesting in terms of for people that might be local or those that, you know, travel to see the exhibition, which is a little different for our space and maybe normal for you, for your practice, but like there there won't be labels next to everything. There will be a, a map. It will give you a general sense of what is in the space and if you really really want more, there will be an info sheet that you can go to 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 figure that out so um also i'm looking forward to that as well people have to come to the work and they have to digest it
2: and they also have to come come to people who work here that's the thing is mm-hmm. like there, every object has a story every reason there's a cluster of something has a story the whole thing has a different story and so um yeah, the, the the titles shift on things. Some things aren't titled right now. I change them based on my moods because they mean something different. And that also goes back to this idea of like transness and queerness and what is a name and capitalizing a name and why is the title of something so important? Um, this what do you do question? Like we want we want the info sheet or the wall text. It's called a tombstone for a reason.
0: <laughs> right, right. I
2: say. <laughs> And it's like, it, it, it cuts something off. And I want people to ask people who work here and like trail off into where are you from? And, you know, what are you going to eat for lunch? And like these ideas and actually engage with the space rather than treating it like a white cube in which it's so sterile. And I think it, it turns off and it's like, why not stay? Why not like? look at what you can also purchase in like the store area, the other cases, what classes are here, what other knowledge sits here, um, do you want to come back, is there something going on you can jump into, the workshops, the, the, the small project for younger ones, like there's so many other things rather than jumping in, taking a turn around the exhibition and walking out the door. You can do that, that's fine. You can take the white cube model, um, I'm not mad at it. But it's like even the map of those objects, like I've even told you, like you can move things around and like what happens when the map isn't going to fully align? That's actually something we haven't talked about, but it's always about a possible mapping for me. My, my research now really is talking about the possibility, but not defining it. You know, James Baldwin talks about here be dragons, the dragons off the map, the thing that could be scary or fun, but it's just unknown. And... I like I like thinking about that and not, not claiming what it is. Um, you know, Edward Glissant talks about opacity and accepting the fact that we will never fully understand each other and we will never fully understand our objects, and accepting a form of opacity to me is a beautiful thing. It's just it's like how we say take people as they are. It's like mm-hmm. take things as they are, and. You can love somebody or something, and you don't have to have it in your life. You can appreciate something. I love when people hate my work. (laughs) Ambivalence is like the thing to avoid, right? But if someone really dislikes it, it's like clearly also being evocative. So I hope someone comes in and goes, I hate this exhibition. What an amazing thing to do. Like we see that in pop culture, right? Like people produce things that are so terrible And we monetize them and there's a reason for that it it gets the views on youtube or wherever else we are or on those other social media sites that we shouldn't name um and and it, it still creates a currency and that's being capitalized even and we should exploit that as well like this is already a way that we understand the world and so why not use it to create productive discourse
1: absolutely um I, I don't know if I share. I, I I mean, sure. I hope somebody finds something that they don't like to talk about. <laughs> I hope they don't mm-hmm. hate it all. Uh, it seems hard that you could hate it all, but well, I guess we're gonna. Why well, it it,
2: it, <laughs> it would be hard, but I think the like the amazing like what an opportunity though to be like why yeah, yeah and the idea probably is they don't hate it. It's because that quick read maybe they don't attach to, and so what an opportunity also to like be with that person and like pick things apart and I would bet they would find something. It's just like when someone is like, I hate this food. It's like, have you had it cooked every way? Have you had every seasoning on it? Like, I get if you're allergic to it, that's one thing, but we can't be allergic to work.
1: Right, and I mean also, of course, like the content, it goes back to that other thing for me too, that at times I think that when somebody has that visceral or negative reaction it's of course like instigating something within themselves that they're uncomfortable about which then that dialogue helps them to come to a new place whether they're happy about it or not um you know it confronts the viewer um,
2: so right and so the work the work continues on their drive home or walk right. home or at dinner or six months from now and it clicks in their head or they're having a conversation with somebody and it's like, oh yeah, I encountered that already here and it, it, it adds to their knowledge or a discourse um, and and so that's what I mean when I talk about what is the work like that for me is the work like the objects and the, the writing and even sometimes the conversations or being told isn't necessarily a conversation and um, that, that's just the material that gives somebody a way to do the work themselves. It's, it's adding an extra step, but I think that's the beauty of it is it's, it's releasing it. It's not being a master of something. It is not controlling something. It is passing it on. It is being a conduit and saying, here is this assemblage of things, and you read it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I want to first and foremost, thank you, um, one, for talking with us today and also trusting me uh, as a colleague in this work with you. And secondly, I think, you know, as I said, presenting me with challenges that are now likely going to take the rest of my lifetime to answer, if ever. Um, So thank you for that, Matt. And then uh, the question coming. i have
2: to thank you before you you ask the question uh also because i think it is it is a challenging proposition because i think we should divulge that like i didn't send you an object list Mm -hmm. i didn't uh really clarify it was a maybe it will be this or it will look something like that and i think that that is also something we should start thinking about because i viewed this exhibition as Again, I am releasing the authorship, like you being in the space, everyone that works here, like what looks good together, what makes sense, what is like, oof, what's going on here? Um, so I don't I don't own this exhibition either. It Like the space is hosting it and tending it and caretaking for it. Um, and I have just been a contributor to this and I, I really would like to challenge people who maybe are listening that have those opportunities or positions of power to realize that, like, if you invite an artist or somebody, um, you know, are, why are you inviting them? If you really like or are interested in engaging with their work, there should be some trust there mm-hmm. to that they're going to show up. Like that, if you have a mutual respect and a relationship between a, an institution or a position of power with somebody, and you're inviting them in this goes beyond work right this is like when we talk about bringing in um marginalized people uh to do things it's not when you just control everything they do uh it's superficial it's a white savior complex and so when you bring someone in and let them do what they need to do uh to put themselves in it and then find the common ground like my exhibitions, I want them to work with the space. It is Mm -hmm. customized. And we have stepped so far away from that. And it's like, why don't you want a customized exhibition? Like, (laughs) if this, if this travels somewhere else, it will not look this way. It could be the exact same stuff, but it's going to be rearranged um, to fit the space, to to treat the space also as a person. So I really want to express gratitude for just letting it happen and occasionally taking a few social media (laughs) (laughs) images of like yeah there's stuff coming but (laughs) and I don't know what's going to get packed I mean half this exhibition came from Sweden in two suitcases and it was kind of like when I was packing what mood was I in is kind of what came and I brought more than what was needed and it's just I think we all should be bringing more than what's needed and leaving some things behind and taking other things with us.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly poetic and absolutely true.
2: Thank you.
0: But Matt, um, I am very intrigued by this question, uh, your answer to this question. So um, Matt, lowercase m, (laughs) (laughs) can you please share with us the uh, three songs that you would
2: say, describe your work? Yes, this is actually, well, it's more hard to cut it down. I sing a lot of uh, 90s uh, femmes in my my, uh, dissertation even. I argue that art history taught us how to write and our job as makers is to provide embodiment or more information to be with the work. So I sing a lot. Um, That's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I definitely argue this um so this is going this is like a little bit hard cuz I have like four that really come to mind
0: Okay so you get good. you give us four because I am like seriously like so into this right now, um, what your answer is going to be. Uh, first of all, you said you, you sing a lot of 90s, and um, are you Gen X, or?
2: I was born in 89. I don't know uh, what that means. I don't know what generation. Yeah,
0: I have, I technically, I already... no, I don't think you are. Well, I guess the real question would have been, like, were you like a teenager in the 90s? Um, you were not. Uh, I so was I'm, not. So it's just, you know, I'm just, you know, goes to show that the 90s, yes, still has one of the better decades of music. I'm just...
2: Putting that out there. It, it definitely <laughs> does. Um, so if I get four songs, yes. Um, yes. we're gonna go with the femme queer band Muna uh, song "I Know a Place." Mm-hmm. Uh, I've titled quite a few exhibitions about it. It's uh, about a, someone who is noticing that somebody else is hurt. And so they say that they know a place where um, they can go, where everyone's going to lay down their weapons. Uh, so I've titled many exhibitions off of that. Um, second song is going to be Cruisin', which is originally a Smokey Robinson. But then there's that weird duet in, I don't know the name of the movie, that Gwyneth Paltrow sings it. I love it when we're cruising together. <laughs> but specifically the D'Angelo version.
0: Right on, okay, gotcha. Very specifically
2: (laughs) the D'Angelo version. Um, My method I work with is around cruising and this Mm. idea that's why there's no tags on exhibitions. It's about um, desire and stopping and starting where you want and not being told where to go. And uh, black Mm. feminist theory around this idea of wandering and the need that marginalized people should be playing Um, because academia was built by white men playing. And so why can't we play and go on desire and love, um, to figure out the ways we want to work and exist and live. And that's how I think we'll rethink these structures we've been talking about. Um... Third one is of course going to be Alanis Morissette, Obviously. <laughs> uh, and Jagged Little Pill, the whole album. Oh my God! Um, but, just just uh, throw that
0: in there as like one well, one track yeah.
2: in itself. Uh, but I will go with uh, One Hand in My Pocket. Ah. I will I will sit with that. Um, if you listen to them while you look at the work, it might make help make some sense. If you can't if you can't hold on, um, and then the fourth one. Is specifically the music video version off the Medulla albums Bjork, Who Is It? Uh, carry My uh, Joy on the Left, Carry My Pain on the Right. Nice. Um, which is done with the Icelandic Bell Choir. And I've really one. been thinking about <laughs> art history and this idea that, you know, what sits on the left, creation and destruction on the right, and our hands, and what does that mean? Um, to be responsible as craftspeople for, for joy and also destruction culturally and how those can exist. And really, in a way, I almost think she's, she's singing to craft. Uh, I have music lists to my genders. I have music lists to all sorts of things. It's, it's part of my research, too, of like what does it mean to have playlists for a different facets of ourselves? So Yo, those are the, I, you those are the like, four, you No, have like my, play.
0: the, the amount of playlists that I have <laughs> <What>? <laughs> <laughs> kind of sickening <laughs> it's over the top. Uh, but yeah, like, all right, that is a great list. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, how long are you going, you yourself going to be here in Pittsburgh?
2: I am going to stay until Tuesday. Unfortunately, there's this very strange rule about how many days you can be out of the country if you want residency. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Hoping to come back, maybe talking to Rachel about maybe wreaking some further havoc. Right on. Uh, I have some really good friends here and and things from from childhood, but a good friend that I did the MA in in Critical Craft with is going to come for the opening. And, of course, Erica, who knows the area, and we're going to dive into the city and I'm going to eat all the spicy food I can. Uh, <laughs> Sweden's not known for that. And uh, all the junk food that I possibly can to that isn't available. And yeah, I'm just, I'm looking forward and and seeing, meeting people here and just, I have no plan, as always, sure. same as the exhibition and see what people <laughs> play at the opening and, and just go there. And
0: when's the opening again?
2: When is the...
0: Just
1: tomorrow. tomorrow, tomorrow, which will be April fourteenth, okay. yeah, and then it runs through August
0: nineteenth. Um, okay, well, hopefully, I get a chance to, to sneak on over there and meet you in person, Matt, because um, you are like a you're a delightful individual, and you're just so I I like everything that you, everything we discussed today. Obviously, you, you're you're very thoughtful in the in the term in the sense of you know like you're not doing things. I feel like every, every move that you make has had some like ex, ex, extenuous thought put into it. And um, I appreciate that about
2: you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I am white to be very clear. <laughs> so I, I, I am aware in the situations of my privilege and really thinking about, yeah, like what does it mean to be doing this work? And it is the probably the most difficult place. I would say I work in, if I'm not uncomfortable, I should be questioning why I'm doing something. And I think that's a challenge for it. People who are the more privileged you are, if you are comfortable, maybe you're doing something wrong. <laughs> Is yeah. what I would say. <laughs> we should be making other people comfortable. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm an anxious body. I am always, uh, yeah, thinking about that. But that's why I speak through citations, as I've done in this conversation and other things, to like really provide tools and resources to people who want to dive deeper. Or just message me, hit me up on social media. I'm a very I'm always interested in connecting with people. That's that's what the work is. Very
1: great. Matt, where can people find you? Social uh, I was gonna you. say, you can come to Stockholm
2: and find me. <laughs> um, uh, Instagram is probably the best. It's Matt underscore Lambert underscore studio. There are three Matt Lamberts that all work with queerness. One is a photographer, one is a painter. Um, So if you Google, make sure you put craft in that to find us first. We have been mixed up. I've gotten some amazing shows off of them, but FedEx (laughs) also tells me my paintings are stuck in Austria often Uh, or I'm doing uh, film festivals in Berlin quite often as well. Um, But that is not me. Uh, One day I want to have the Matt Lambert show. So if anybody is out there, I really want to have the Matt Lambert show and invite every Matt Lambert. (laughs) Um, There's also a chef in Chicago. There's a couple uh, now deceased military people. I think it would be really fun to just explore, like, what is a name, right?
0: Sounds from the Studio is produced by Rugged Angel Productions for Contemporary Craft. Hosted by Rachel Rerick and Camila Adams with production support by Mandy Wilson. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share. Thanks for listening.